0: All right, well welcome to another episode of Young and Adulting. We are in our new season where the theme of the season is what I wish I knew. Because you know this, we either learn from our own mistakes or we get to learn from our mentors. So we've been bringing in heroes of the faith, legends in in church, in business, in ministry, and in life to talk about kind of the mistakes that they may have made and what we get to learn from them. And so today, We are bringing in an absolute legend, Lance Witt. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Pastor Lance, you have been around ministry for a long time. You've authored a couple books, Replenish, Your One Life. You lead a ministry called Replenish where you get to serve pastors around the country, and you've been at Christ Fellowship, you've poured so much into Pastor Todd and Julie, into our church staff, into our church on the weekend, and into this Young and Adulting podcast. We are so glad that you're with us
1: today. Wow, I am honored, Lewis. I mean, that's a very gracious introduction. And uh, I don't know if I can deliver on that, but I'll do my best oh, to uh, say on. something that's worth <laughs> worth listening to. So thank you for that. That's very kind. Well, I
0: know I know a little bit about you, but tell us uh, a little about your story and kind of what brought you to the place and, and the, the spaces that you're in.
1: Yeah, so I think I grew up in ministry like a lot of um, young pastors, you know, ambitious, uh, driven. Uh, I wanted to become a good leader. I want my life to count. I wanted to make a difference in the kingdom, you know, with my life. And Mm And so I started pastoring really young. I I actually became a senior pastor for the first time when I was 23. Whoa! I know, and I feel like I should go back and apologize to that church <laughs> for inflicting myself on them because yeah. I had a lot of zeal and enthusiasm, but probably not much wisdom and knowledge. And but they were gracious to let me learn, uh, you know, and make a bunch of mistakes. And um, but I senior pastored for 20 years in three different churches, and then in 1999. Um, I went and joined the staff at Saddleback Church, which is a large church in Southern California. Rick Warren was a senior pastor. I was there during the years he wrote the book Purpose Driven Life. I've heard of it. And yeah, and it was a game changer for him and for our church. He sort of became this global celebrity. Our church grew by 8,000 people in attendance over two years. And we did this campaign called 40 Days of Purpose that was kind of my responsibility to lead in our church, but also to help other churches do it. And again, it's a much longer story, but the bottom line is um, I always tell people it was both the most intoxicating season of my life and toxic all at the same time. Wow. So it was this amazing rocket ride of ministry influence, but it was also a season with a lot of chaos and pressure. And it fed into some very unhealthy things in me. Mm. And so after seven years of being there, uh, through some difficult seasons, Rick and I had four pretty lengthy conversations together and finally just became convinced that I had to step aside. Um, and more than just wanting something different in ministry, I knew I had to to do life differently. And that began me on this search of kind of bringing my soul back to life. And for the last seventeen years, I would say, I have been learning, what it means to live and lead from a healthy soul. And and I think the order of that's really important. Like, I think for so many years, Lewis, as a leader, I just focused on how do I become a better leader? How do I grow my church and build the kingdom? And I wasn't paying attention to how was Lance as a person and a human living? Mm. And instead of leading out of the overflow, it was all about doing and leading. And often I was leading from an empty place. And that is not a fun place from which to do ministry, and so out of my own journey with that, now I have the privilege of walking alongside other leaders and basically being a pastor to pastors, and so um, that's that's what I've been doing.
0: That's that's incredible. We are we're talking a lot about um, what what it takes to to take, go to the next level in in life, in the marketplace, all these different spaces, and we're we're trying to go forward. We're trying to progress. But whenever we take steps like that, we often get some criticism or we get people kind of applauding us. So can you talk to us a little bit about criticism and praise and how to manage our soul in the middle of that? Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, This is a big topic for me because I have a lot of history on this one. I am a longtime approval addict and have often, I think like a lot of people in ministry, live for the approval of other people. And tell you a quick story that goes all the way back to that first church when I was in my mid-20s, early 20s. And Mm -hmm. we used to have a Monday night prayer meeting uh, with the men in the church, and it was maybe seven, eight, nine men on a Monday night. And it was a time to pray, but it was also a time just to kind of shoot the breeze and talk about life in the community. On this one particular night, we were meeting in our youth room. I remember sitting on this couch, old couch, and we were talking about a church in our area that had lost its pastor. And so um, one of the guys in the room, just kidding, kind of good-natured banter, he said, man, I'd love to apply for that job because I can't imagine anything easier than being a pastor. And even though it's been like more than 40 years ago now, I could take you back to the exact spot where I was sitting in that room on that couch. And what ran through my head when that guy said that was, I'll show you. Like... I'll I'll be here first. I'll go home last. I'll work harder than any pastor you've ever had. And um, I'll prove to you that I am not a lazy pastor. Mm -hmm. And man, um, there was something broken in my spirit, and I didn't recognize it at the time. But I set out to prove to those guys something they never asked me to prove. And again, I know this guy. It was not mean-spirited. It was good-natured. But there was something in me that, like, I had to gain their approval. They had to wow. be okay with me. And I wish, you know, talking about what you wish you would have known, I wish I would have known that that issue in me was not just a leadership or personality issue, but actually it was an emotional health and soul issue. And there was something deep in my soul that was connected to this issue, uh, uh, this issue of wanting people's approval and wanting people to be pleased with me. And, um, and since then, I've done some hard work of going back and identifying this internal script or the narrative that ran in my head and in my spirit for so many years. And I know I picked it up from my dad, who was a great Christian, but like most men of his generation, he was— um, high on responsibility and work ethic. So the Mm -hmm. script I picked up early on was work hard, be responsible, achieve. And that's how you succeed and that's how you get loved. Wow. So when that's the story you tell yourself, you're only as good as your latest achievement and you're Mm -hmm. only as good as your latest accomplishment. And so one of the ways that you feel that sense of achievement is that you have people applaud you. Mm-hmm. And that validates like, yes, I am somebody and I, I, I have value. But then when people criticize you, where you go is to a really dark place. And criticism, when you're a people pleaser, criticism can just be devastating to you wow. because what you feel internally, even from a well-intended, constructive, critical comment, what you feel is, I'm not good enough. Mm. And you play the script of, yeah, you're right, I suck. And so you just work that much harder to try to win people's applause. And, and I remember hearing way, way long ago this statement that really resonates with my spirit, and it's simply this, that for a lot of us, I think it's in ministry, but really for anybody, mm-hmm. that for a lot of us, compliments are written in the sand, but criticism is written in wet cement. Whoa. And uh, the compliments stay with you for an hour or two or a day, yeah. but man, those criticisms, they, they just are etched on your soul. And I can remember just obsessing over some critical comment or an email I got from someone and not being able to let it go. And so I think this is a big issue for a lot of us.
0: It is. And I even think about the sermon that you preached at Christ Fellowship just a little bit ago and how we're supposed to sit at the feet of Jesus and be with Jesus because he's the only one that can really fulfill our lives. Whenever we think about criticism, uh, approval, people-pleasing. We want to be people that live for an audience of one, and that one is Jesus. Pastor, would you tell us a little bit about how you've learned to do that well?
1: Yeah, I think you're so right. I, there's a there's a great story that um, kind of talks really about that audience of one. So it was a lady who plays in the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, and um she was interviewed by a newspaper and the the journalist asked a really insightful question. He said, when you play on Saturday night and you get done and the crowd gives you a standing ovation and then you pick up the paper on Sunday morning and you hear the words of the critics who mm. sort of, you know, aren't applauding you, but talking about all your mistakes or how it came across, how, how do you deal with those, with the the standing ovation and the applause and the words of the critic. And she just quickly said, and I've never forgotten this, oh, I learned a long time ago to never pay attention to either one. She said, it's only the conductor who knows whether I played like I was supposed to. And I've just loved that because I think it's been that reminder that too often I've listened to the applause and certainly listened to the words of the critics, right? Instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. And so for me, part of my journey and gaining some victory in this Lewis is, is learning to replace that old internal narrative of work hard, be responsible, achieve. And only when you do that, are you going to succeed? And are people really going to love you and like you with the truth of God's word, which says you are valuable just in yourself. Just relax. I made you just like I wanted you. Mm -hmm. Um, and really what matters most is whether you're pleasing me. And so um, I think for a lot of us, the narratives that we've tended to believe are rooted in a lie. And what over time, we have to learn how to replace those with truth and let the truth become the narrative. And I would say to you, that is no easy job, right? I mean, replacing those deeply etched scripts with truth can be such a huge a huge challenge for all of us, I think. And so um I, I just think we have to work hard and it takes time and give yourself time. And then another word I would just say on a practical level, it's a psychological word, but we have to learn how to be differentiated. Okay. And differentiated means I can be connected to you and 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 I want to be connected to you, but I also am not dependent on what you think of me to find my sense of worth or identity. So I'm differentiated in the sense that I, I I don't have to have the approval or the applause in order for me to feel and be who I'm supposed to be. And, um, you know, I think, you know, when we do that, I no longer use the filter of your opinion of me to determine what I'm going to say or how I'm going to act. Like I can be comfortable in just being me. And I think Jesus modeled this so well as he loved people, genuinely entered their world. He wasn't stiff-arming people or disconnected from them, right? Obviously, in the Gospels, he was just so present, so engaged. But he also didn't depend on them. A couple of times he says, yeah, you know, everybody's applauding me, but I know what's in their hearts. Like yeah. I, and, and he was just always so clear about his mission and who he was. And I love that the couple of times that God speaks out loud from heaven over Jesus in the gospels, he says, hey, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's interesting to me that Jesus's What he received from the Father in those moments wasn't like, hey, here's what I want you to do. It wasn't instructional. It wasn't directional like, oh, here's where I want you to go. No, the words were just relational. And man, I think if Jesus as the Son of God needed that sense of identity from the Father, how much more do I need to let that settle in my soul and let that be kind of the voice that really guides me instead of all the other voices that say, go here, be this, do that. You got to achieve this. You got to be successful over here and just to just relax and go, "No. I I just need to be a child of God." And by the way, that's enough. So, mm-hmm. for me, those have been a couple of things I think that have been helping me on a real practical level. I think one you have to slow down and like pay attention to what are those scripts inside of you and do some of the hard internal work. And I feel like for a lot of leaders, Lewis, their lid in leadership is their lack of self-awareness. Wow. And if we could become more self-aware of the broken places in us and the and the sense of who we are in Christ, even growing our awareness of that, I think we, you know, our leadership can go to new levels because there's this great quote. It's not original with me, but I love it. It says, self-awareness is your best defense against self-deceit. And so as I slow down and become a student of my own soul and become aware of some of that stuff in me that God wants to work on, I all of a sudden start to get healthier and I get, you know— to be a more godly leader i think Mm -hmm. so one you got to slow down do some hard internal work and then i would also say on a really practical level you got to manage the moment because when you're a people pleaser things that bring up insecurities in you they're going to come at you like all the time right you know they're going to be little triggers and criticisms and comments and an email that are going to trigger that insecurity and so you know, and I don't think you can stop all those from coming your way, right? But I always say like they're going to knock on your door, but you don't have to open the door and invite them to come in and have coffee and hey, donuts, right. right? Like, yep. like I can actually make a decision and manage the moment. And I, I, I want to share with you a quote. That is one of my favorite. It comes from Viktor Frankl, who wrote, out of the Holocaust experience, a book called The Meaning of Life. And and he makes this comment, and I think it applies for us, what we're talking about. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And sometimes it's a nanosecond. It's a micro space. But there's this space, and in that space, he says, there is the power to choose our response. And so you're going to get triggered. There's going to be those moments when you want to go to that, that feeling of, oh, yeah, I'm not enough. But there's a space. It's a small space. And my prayer is that people would begin and young adults would begin to, like, listen to the voice of God in that moment. And in that space, really choose to, like, believe who they are and their true identity in Christ. And, 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 and uh, Frankel says, in our response lies both our growth and our freedom. Wow. Don't you love that? Isn't that rich?
0: I really do. I really do. But I want to get inside your mind. All right? It's a dangerous
1: place to be, but go ahead.
0: (laughs) Whenever the trigger happens, what is that nanosecond in your mind? What's going through your mind? Are there verses? Are there phrases? What are the thoughts? What is the voice of God telling you in that space right there?
1: Yeah. I think the first thing that happens is simply recognizing it for what it is. It is an attack on your identity. And I think for me being able to name it and go, what that is, is that's that old script and it's rearing okay. its yep. head. So I think awareness in simply being able to recognize it and name it allows you to cut it off at the pass easier. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to, to not let it just hijack you and take you to such a dark place. But, to, but if I can just sort of in my spirit recognize like, okay, here's a moment. And you can sort of feel the emotion. The more I think you live with this, the more you train yourself to go, oh, something just happened. And there's some emotion and some insecurity being triggered in me. And I, I want to become defensive right now. I want to explain. And I think just to choose to like, just relax, Lance. Your, your identity is not ruined by, by that one comment or by this one moment. And then I think it is replacing the lie with truth. And so, you know, there are several verses that I think in my own growth and development have been helpful for me to kind of just like lean into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think about all the times in Proverbs where correction and even rebuke are seen as a gift from God. And wow, we boy, don't think that, about that. No, a lot. that is not. I've always seen it as an attack, you know, as a bad thing, a negative thing. And yet Proverbs says, you know, that when I'm corrected or someone brings a criticism my way, actually it's a part of the refining process in my life. And it's actually can be a very positive thing. And, and I think it's in Proverbs 28 where he says, In the end, and I like how he starts in the end, because in the moment, it doesn't feel like this. Mm -mm. But when it's run its course, he says, people appreciate honest criticism far more than flattery. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I know I need that. Sometimes I don't really want it. But the truth is, you know, when people are pointing out the true stuff in my life that needs to be refined or the sharp edges that need to be, you know, um, taken away then actually, that's that's good for me. Um, I think on the other side, I got to be careful that praise and applause doesn't become, you know, something that I clamor after. And uh, I think about in Proverbs 27, Solomon says, "Let someone else praise you, not your own mouth." And, and it's okay to get a compliment. It's okay for people to affirm and encourage you. But here's what, again, if you want to get inside my, not just my head, but my heart and my soul, if I'm honest, I would tell you too many times I have taken too much life from people's compliments. Like it, it fed something in me that wasn't very healthy. And again, it's okay to receive a compliment and just say, thank you. I don't think you have to explain it away or deflect. I think it's okay to just go, hey, thanks. That really means a lot. But what you have to guard is inside your own heart. Is it like, are you clamoring for that? And and I think at worst, you begin to manipulate conversations or posture yourself in such a way that people will compliment you mm. and applause you. Hello. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and then I, I think related to this, you know, the Bible is so clear that it says that God stiff arms the proud, but he exalts the humble. Yeah. And... I think at the heart of some of this is is the issue of pride. Yeah, it is. And lack of humility. And I think about when James says in James 3.16 that wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, just mark it down. There will be disorder and every kind of evil. Mm. And so when ambition, the need to succeed, the need to build my platform, the need to be somebody or have people think I'm a success— James says, whenever that begins to take root in your heart, um, you can just beware, like, hey, disorder, dysfunction is going to follow. And not only that, but e- evil, like bad things happen when, you know, selfish ambition and pride begins to take my heart. And I think a lot of my people pleasing, it's really rooted in a pride to want to be thought in a certain way, uh, thought of in a certain way to be seen as a success.
0: Wow. Wow. Whenever you talk to all of these pastors that you get to to spend time with, or whenever you talk to even your own family, how do you how do you encourage excellence and purpose and whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might? How do you how do you uh, meld that thought with also this thought of I'm not doing this for people at all? It's yeah. really the question of how do you do your best without letting it take over your life?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I So I think if you go back, the ancient church fathers used to talk about what they would call a fire in the belly. We would call it ambition or drive. And Mm -hmm. and it's where this desire, and it comes from God, this desire to make a difference and the desire to do things with excellence and to, to, to do whatever we do to the glory of God and to give our best effort in whatever we do. And so there's this fire in us. And and it's especially raging, I think, as you're in your younger years, as your 20s and 30s, and and but they would say that 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 uh, fire in your belly is like raw electricity. It's mm-hmm. full of potential. It's full of life. Um, it can do a lot of good. Um, it's alive. But they would say, and this is where I think the point is, it has to be hooked to the transformer of a healthy soul to a humble soul. And so you think about raw electricity, and again, it can do a lot of good, it's full of of potential, but it also can be very destructive if it's not channeled and governed and directed in the right way. And so what these ancient church fathers would say is the key to directing it where it's helpful and healthy and godly is that it's anchored in a healthy soul that is humble that is connected to God. And I think part of it is actually just saying, God, reveal the ambition in me that is self-serving. Because there is godly ambition. Mm -hmm. Godly ambition to see God's kingdom grow and to see the influence of the kingdom get bigger and better. But the truth is sometimes that even I can sort of cloak what looks like godly ambition, I can cloak it in personal ambition. And it's really about me. And so I think to ask God to like really examine my motives. And then I think we need some people around us who can call us on it when they go, hey, feels to me like you were sort of posturing in that conversation. Or why did you feel like you had to exaggerate what happened or how many people showed up at that event? Like what's going on there? And so I need a, I don't need a lot of people, but I need a couple of people in my life who love me enough that when I, the signs of ambition, unhealthy ambition, begin to show up in my life, they can point it out. Mm-hmm. And again, hopefully it's people that. that love me, and I know that you love me, and, and that's why you've earned the right to tell me that stuff. But I, I need it. And I think one of the things that brings a lot of leaders down, Lewis, is they just live in isolation, and no one wow. tells them the truth anymore.
0: Wow. Well, we... We want to try to make sure that all of our spaces are communities where people are telling the truth. I know that you tell the truth. If you've written how many books? Three books? Three books, yeah. Um, Replenish, High Impact Teams, Your One Life. If I'm sitting here saying, I am, what he's talking about is that godly ambition, the selfish ambition, which one of your books would you recommend if I was going to study this a little bit more?
1: Um, in the Replenish book, and, and I would say because it was such a big part of my journey coming out of Saddleback, I feel like the Holy Spirit shined the spotlight on my unhealthy ambition, maybe more than any other sin or issue in my life. And so in Replenish, I do talk about, uh, again, it was written to leaders. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if you consider yourself a leader, you've probably got some help, you know, a good amount of ambition. But it needs to be brought under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so I would say go check out Replenish.
0: Yeah.